0: The World Cup in Qatar is, has become like a battleground for, you know, who can who can display the, the strongest message.
1: I'm Andrew Chappell, and this is a controversial podcast, one that's recorded on the lands of the oldest continuing cultures on Earth. SBS acknowledge the traditional custodians of country and their connections and continuous care for the skies, lands and waterways throughout Australia. Today, we're talking about a clash of cultures at the World Cup and how a lack of nuance and cultural understanding in media reporting is creating divisions. So that's where I'm coming from for this episode. As we've already heard, a lot of people from the Arab community, and not just Qataris, feel resentment towards the media for the picture that's been painted about them over the last 12 years.
2: Listen, everybody's welcome in Doha. We do not stop anybody from coming to Doha with any different backgrounds, any different belief. Qatar is a very welcoming country. We have millions of people that come and visit our country. And uh, the World Cup is a great opportunity for people from different parts of the world to come and experience our culture. Um, We will not stop anybody from coming, visiting and enjoying the football. But I want also everybody to come and understand enjoy also the culture, to see different cultures as as well. We all live in one uh, planet, but each of us have different cultures. We welcome everybody, but also we expect and we want people to respect our culture.
3: We urge the state of Qatar and all Qataris to fully realize the Amir's message here. And that—that that is to truly uh, uh, recognize uh, and, and welcome everyone to the cup, to the World Cup.
1: And for this discussion, we have an obvious starting point to talk about a clash of cultures, the one-love armband, an unlikely symbol of controversy which was intended to bring football fans together, and the local artist who put her own spin on it while asking Europe to practice the tolerance it preaches.
0: Hi, Andrew. Um, My name is Ghadal Khatir. I am a Qatari uh, artist living and based in Qatar. I'm a multidisciplinary artist and I do a range of works from political cartoons to multidisciplinary light installations. I'm interested in societal issues and international affairs and every now and then like to participate in those conversations and um, social experiments. The One Love campaign was a cartoon a political cartoon uh, i did reflecting the logo of the one love campaign which is a heart made up of uh, approximately six colors which forms the logo of the one love and it's just to create this sort of um visual link in this in that some people are allowed to protest their causes and while others are, are not when it comes to the occupation in palestine The colors of the Palestinian flag have always been, you know, controversial. Their use uh, across different platforms has also been controversial, uh, and in some cases banned, actually, or removed. And all of the colors I I mentioned, whether the Palestinian flag or the Ukraine, are all are included in the logo. And so I sort of emphasize uh, the colors that are deemed not political versus the colors that are that are deemed political. The motivation came from or actually stemmed from a range of things. It felt like ever since Qatar won the bid uh, to host the the World Cup, that the world was against it. Two days later, uh, President Obama made a press conference saying Qatar does not deserve to win. Um, The Guardian and other British media began their campaign. And so you're looking at um, december 2nd 2010 um and since then it's just been an ongoing sort of um i wouldn't say campaign just uh, an uh, an ongoing movement of you know um this similar reporting towards qatar um whether through the lens of human rights whether it's through the lens of it's, that it's undeserving because of its size or, or, or any other um, point for that matter, and no, it felt as if no matter what Qatar uh, did, um, that it was just it was losing or that it it was just not enough. And Qatar has proven otherwise throughout the course of the twelve years. And being a big football fan myself, I know for a fact um, how many countries have been penalized for displaying political messages, whether through their armbands or their T-shirts, uh, countries ranging from Palestine to the Middle East, Africa and Latin America. And I remember those messages, whether they were, you know, uh, the peace sign or, or promoting love or um, FIFA had, had then, almost 10 years ago, very strict rules. As to what messages you can display or not um, in the football pitch, and it seemed that in the towards the 90s and 2000s that become prevalent in that we do not want to politicize the sport. We want it to be together, especially around the time of uh, the the U.S. invasion uh, to Iraq and um, the the ongoing sort of um, the ongoing uh, occupation in Palestine. Uh, the more people rallied up, the more people felt like they wanted to, you know, display these messages. The more they felt like they did, they did not have the platforms to do it. And and I feel like these these regulations have become very lax throughout the years. And and now it's it's as if that the 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 World Cup in Qatar has has become like a battleground for you know who can who can display the, the strongest message, who can, who can showcase their, their support. They would like to be the heroines uh, of that story. Even the one, the one Love campaign. If we unpack this campaign, this is such a vague campaign that even in Europe, members of the LGBTQ community don't feel like they are represented in this campaign. So my question is, what does this campaign even promote? One love, and like you kind of you want to research it and get into it. There's barely any details as to you know what this promotes, and what does this um what is this campaign even saying, and who is it t- saying it to? And if it's just an armband, um you know if we look at the colors, uh, I think that's why the colors aren't don't exactly refer to the uh, you know the LGBTQ flag. They have like a general you know, sorts of color scheme to them. And again, it's as if like the vaguer the campaign, the easier it is to attach a lot of meaning to it and say that it's promoting many things because it's not really giving insight.
3: She has a point. Football has the power to unite people. All players and fans have at least one thing in common, their love for the game. With the One Love campaign, we're propagating the fact that differences don't matter because we all share the same love. By wearing the One Love armband, we want to emphasize that our aim is to unite and connect, that we are against any form of exclusion and discrimination anywhere in the world. Let's enjoy together.
1: As you just heard, the One Love campaign was launched in 2020 by the Royal Dutch Football Association. The colors of the heart and the logo represent everyone's pride in their heritage, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation. Part of the backstory here is that there are often issues around racism in football, usually comments and chants by fans, but homophobia is deeply entrenched. FIFA has already opened disciplinary hearings against Mexico and Ecuador for homophobic chanting by their fans at Qatar 2022, while fans from Argentina sang a racist and transphobic song about the French team on live television. A majority of LGBTIQ people still feel unsafe and unwelcome at sporting events, in general, despite noticeable progress that's been made in the past decade. That's according to the UK charity Stonewall. An international study conducted on homophobia in sport in English-speaking countries, called Out on the Fields, found that 80% of participants had witnessed or experienced homophobia. 75% of Australians believe an openly gay, lesbian, or bisexual person would not be very safe as a spectator at a sporting event. That figure rises to 85% in the UK. The coverage of the multicolored armband evolved in the lead-up to the World Cup to become a rainbow armband, to protest Qatar's laws which criminalize sex between men. The captains of England, Wales, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Germany, and Denmark were planning to wear the armband in this context but pulled a u-turn during the first week of the tournament. FIFA made it clear that sporting sanctions would be imposed if captains wore the armbands on the field of play.
4: Of course we support it but we're here to play football at the same time. Um, so yeah, it's I think just by not wearing, wearing the armband doesn't mean we don't support it. Um, we're all for equality and we're all we're always trying to do the right thing, trying to create that awareness. and. In terms of doing something else, um, I guess when teams try and do something else and the result doesn't go the right way, then they get criticised for not concentrating on the football.
1: FIFA was slammed in the press, but the decision was welcome news to a lot of people. Many in Qatar have taken issue with the picture that's been painted about them in the media, which they say often reduces them to rich, intolerant and human rights abusing caricatures. To them, the criticism seems one-sided overly negative and hypocritical.
0: It begs the question, why? Why now? Why here? This energy that's just been centered towards the need and want uh, to display a message uh, upon entering Qatar. It's as if there is this pressure to do so, as if, you know, the coming here uh, has to be a, a, a protest. It cannot be uh, by choice. And then it sort of ranges to, to many things, not uh, other than the armband itself. Things like the Denmark kit, which to me came as a, as a complete um, sort of shock that FIFA could allow uh, or approve such a move and having a, a, a home kit completely in protest towards the country and again without merit just using you know again like the cliche headlines and i think the denmark kit for me was a was a big shock yeah it seems like the the past decade this focus on um the world cup and and politics has been has been extreme and i think that's where the double standard lies um whether it's through the reporting of qatar or the banning of russia from 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 the world cup would that be exercised against the us to a certain degree um for you know the, the countless invasions of uh, i don't know you you name them iraq afghanistan vietnam like how? Where does FIFA draw the line or where, does, where, where do countries draw the line as to what acts they deem political or not political or involved in football or not involved in football? But I feel like the, the narrative and the vernacular used against Qatar since, since the discovery of, of oil in this region has always been this one sphere. And painting a picture like that for many years uh, you know, sort of formulates an opinion uh, or, or a visual to people's mind. And uh, we go to Europe and this is the sort of um, point of view that, that, that people carry towards people of this region. Um, rich and human rights abuses are pretty much everything that this country or this region is all about. And that's why it was easy. It was such an easy target for the World Cup to draw this uh, this link, regardless of whether you know um, these issues are uh, have been uh, and currently being addressed with time. So, regardless of improvements uh, of being made or not, regardless whether or not you know um, other um, successes in other sectors are are, are happening, no matter what. Uh, that lens sort of diminishes everything this region is doing or has done for the past decade. Um, and it kind of you know sets you up to 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 fail in a, in a way. A lot of these media outlets were invited to Qatar in the beginning uh, many of them um, you know uh, were given were given a chance to see Qatar to see the reforms but I think with the past four or five years, Um, Qatar has sort of closed its doors, knowing that, not closed, but, you know, have geared their attention towards other things, knowing that it's just constant, it's a constant one-sided conversation. They would rather let the work and, you know, all the good things as well speak for themselves, you know, in, in, in that sort of lens. I think I would just like to end with wanting uh, people or urging people to, to open up their minds and hearts to the people of this region and to know that they are always welcome. And um, there is no greater experience than experiencing a new culture uh, for, for yourself and formulating your opinions for yourself. And I hope uh, that through this interview, I can open up people's hearts and minds.
1: Marco and jones is an Associate Professor of Middle East Studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar.
4: I analysed the British press because the British press has been pretty active in covering Qatar, maybe because the UK is a spotting nation, partly maybe because they lost the bid to Qatar. But um, I, it's always, a, you know, it's, a, it's an active press, let's say that. So what I found was really interesting. I found that uh, 40% of all articles that included Qatar in the headline were about the World Cup, right? So basically... 40% of all articles focused on the World Cup. So in a way anything about Qatar in the British press was seen through the prism of the World Cup. In other words Qatar's relevance uh, in the media uh, was only defined according to football which again was really interesting because it just paints Qatar as a very simplistic place in terms of its relevance to the British people. Basically Qatar isn't relevant unless we're talking about the world cup so i thought that was really curious and and what was curious is comparing it for example to say russia i mean russia uh obviously held the world cup in 2018 um and russia up until that point was you know it annexed crimea uh russian forces or line forces had shot down a malaysian airliner it poisoned the Skripals. um you know they they've done a hell of a lot uh but russia only appeared in relation to any of those kind of negative actions three percent of the time in the british media so as qatar was 40 percent of articles were about over uh, the world cup uh three percent of russia were about the world cup so to me it just highlighted this really interesting balance or imbalance rather of how the qatar world cup or rather had been focused on by british press resulting in a very unnuanced portrayal of the country
1: so what are these caricatures that you identified and that
4: you've heard other people raise well i think Some of the caricatures tie into classic notions of of Orientalism.
3: The late academic Edward Said developed the term Orientalism to describe how Europeans portrayed the Orient as inferior, uncivilized, and all-around weird. But importantly, Said argued this was also simultaneously about defining Europe as the Orient's opposite, superior, civilized, and all-around wonderful. The actual term, the Orient, refers to the rising of the sun in the East and comes from the Latin word, Oriens. So we could think of Orientalism as Easternism, or stereotyping of the East. Orientalism, then, is the form of knowledge, in quotation marks, that authorizes and justifies the assertion of Western power over the East. But what does this actually mean? Orientalism acts like a pair of glasses that distort your vision and exaggerate cultural and religious differences. With these glasses, just about everything and everyone seems highly exotic and strange, or worse, fanatical and dangerous. Women in the Middle East, for example, appear only as exotic, a belly dancer or oppressed, a quote unquote, veiled woman, with no nuances in between. And in the early 20th century, you might have seen men portrayed as exotically romantic, or more recently, as crazy and fanatical, a terrorist, and miss all the ordinary human beings along the way. Many Arabs, Muslims and Asians embrace this controversial term to describe the unique kind of racism they experience. Orientalism encapsulates for many how their culture, religion and ethnicity are so often reduced to a stereotype, causing their humanity to be overlooked and culture misunderstood.
4: You construct that narrative, you construct that negativity through the way in which you portray a country. So going back to the 40%, if 40% of articles are about the World Cup and then say uh, 60% of those articles are about the um, migrant worker abuses and obviously migrant working conditions are, are, aren't great in Qatar, no one's denying that. But what it does, it just basically defines Qatar according to those things. So Qatar becomes barbaric uh, and cruel uh, within that context, there was a recent op ed in The Guardian, the, the British newspaper The Guardian, that started with one of these classic uh, forms of uh, caricatures, you know, these reductionist narratives that reduce a complex place to, to a simple idea, which is that Qatar is known for two things huge oil reserves and flagrant human rights abuses. And for me, it was an example of a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if that's how you write about a country, as a country that only matters because of energy and human rights abuses, then of course that's how you're going to see it. And of course, there's much more to Qatar than those things, but at the same time, that's literally how the press has been writing about it. So I think in terms of these the caricatures, that's, that's really what Qatar has become, uh, this kind of grotesque, human rights-abusing, energy-rich small country a young upstart state you know with dubious political alliances so i i do think there is this been this overall tendency now to portray qatar as a um in a simplistic way and and we know there's 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 various reasons for this um and i think these are generally stuff that don't just apply to qatar we know from various studies that uh, uh that the western media generally tends to report negatively on countries that are smaller and less visible and less powerful um Western media coverage of mega sporting events like the World Cup uh, is also kind of meant to be beset with uh, Orientalist tropes. We saw that a few studies done on the 2010 South Africa World Cup and the 1996 Indian Cricket World Cup did the same. Um, They, you know, tended to, in South Africa's case, they portrayed it as violent uh, and there was a a theme of Afro-pessimism where they basically attributed a lot of uh, South Africa's ills to this kind of inherent problem with the continent being unable to develop, which, again, is quite an Orientalist trope in that regard. Um, And, you know, this was seen as such a problem that I think the South African government actually complained that British press coverage was responsible for a reduction of numbers of people coming to the tournament. I don't know if that's true, but um, they were obviously irked by that. So I think that was... um, that's that's a really important aspect. But key among this as well is that a lot of studies have been done on representations of the Arab world, Arabs and Muslims in the British press. And this has consistently found that the British press represents Arabs and Muslims negatively. So I don't think we can exclude the fact that this is the first World Cup in an Arab and Muslim-majority state. And I think this probably does play some role in how the press portrays it and certainly how some journalists and, and the public might be willing to uh, accept these narratives about a place because it ties into perhaps this kind of nascent sense of prejudice about the region and about Muslims and Arabs. Qatar only became independent in the 1970s, so it's a relatively young state in an independent sense. Uh, and it's also a state that's development for many years was defined according to its you know, role under British protection. And I think what's, what bothers me it's not necessarily that we shouldn't use sports events to to kind of lobby for human rights abuses. I do think these kind of moments actually are a great opportunity to help countries improve those legacies. I think the moralizing becomes hugely problematic because so many countries in the global north, including the UK in particular, was uh, perfectly... Um, it hosted its own World Cup in 1966, for example, at a time where it was illegal to be gay in the UK. And the UK has a terrible record when it comes to to how it's treated the lgbtq community i mean you know alan turing the co- inventor of the computer was was uh chemically castrated as well lots of other gay men and obviously of course the laws in qatar for example are very prohibitive and, and the death penalty exists for those who, who are courts engaging in, in 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 sodomy as they call it in the law obviously i don't call it that but um the, you know there's apparently as far as i know there's no record of them actually uh killing anyone or castrating anyone for that. Not that that's an exoneration, but I think there's this idea that um, when, when Western news outlets seem to be kind of lecturing in in how they think Qatar should behave, is this firstly an absence of consideration that they've been able to host these events without this kind of moralizing that we've seen, um, which is um, hugely problematic. Like, for example, when we talk about a World Cup now in a European state, if it, we talk about the labor systems that go into the construction of stadiums, it's short, it's a very kind of chronologically limited period of time. You know, much of the infrastructure we've seen in Western Europe, for example, has been built over decades, if not centuries. And often these decades and centuries have involved years of labor exploitation. They've, they've involved child labor. They've involved slave labor. And but those countries get off the hook because those things are seen, quote unquote, as in the past in many cases. Uh, But as with Qatar, it's a new state. It's building all this infrastructure from scratch. Um, And then there's this kind of imperious moralizing is that, you know, Qatar shouldn't be able to do that in the same way or not the same way. It's not the same at all. Um, But that they shouldn't that any any sort of egregious acts undertaken in Qatar are something that western countries have never ever done themselves so i think that's a really problematic issue with here and you know imperialism has legacies too you know whether it's in law uh, such as the kafala system and the treatment of migrant workers that aren't easily or necessarily overcome uh so rapidly as one would like right so these systems exist and these six systems are also a remnant of uh imperial rule they're not completely the result of it, but there are remnants and that should be factored in. So I think that's that's a really big aspect of this. Regards the LGBTQ um, issues, I think this is another one where we have this kind of combination of uh, issues. There's lots of people who are very homophobic who live in, in Qatar and the Middle East and everywhere, but I think the Middle East um, is a very conservative place in that regard. But of course, to respect... LGBTQ rights is also a human right. And this creates this this kind of tension where you have a situation where you want, for example, there to be better laws to protect LGBTQ people. But at the same time, you can't force a population to suddenly agree to something uh, or accept something that's been foisted upon them. Right, it has to be come from within. And I think when you see some of the stunts that we've seen like that pete tatchell protest or that peter tatchell protest it's emblematic of this white savior kind of mentality where people uh, feel that they need to come to the middle east or elsewhere to save them and this again reminds you of that kind of white colonial gaze where representations of the, the region are such that people who are from the global north think that they can come and through the activism save people when really the activism needs to come from people who are in the region so i think there's a lot here to unpack and i think um, you know, crucially, you know, the representation of Qatar in the press simplifies it to such an extent, it creates no history, it dehistoricizes it. It doesn't, for example, explain why, you know, Qatar now is the first Arab and Muslim nation in the world to have the World Cup. It's no coincidence that it's getting the World Cup now and it didn't get the World Cup in the 1970s, right? And the irony here is if, for example, Qatar had won the World Cup in the 1970s, there, would be no, there wouldn't be would be the same level of scrutiny. That we see now but the reason it's getting the world cup now as opposed to 30 years ago is is exactly because of a history of colonial and imperial power relations that have defined the development of the world and defined the trajectory of who gets these mega sporting events so i think you know the way i'd sum that up was you know qatar is or an arab country really is the last in the line to be awarded one of these prestigious events but the first in line of in terms of moral expectations for how that event should take place and i think that's fundamentally unfair and it fundamentally reflects this kind of again this colonial kind of mindset uh, in which people apply the same standards and laws to to different countries that have really only just come out of their kind of colonial or imperial subjugation
2: but pastimes like soccer are drawing many city egyptians away from their traditional preoccupations Football matches like this one between Cairo's crackside Zamalek and Alexandria help Egyptians to release energies that can find few political outlets in Egypt nowadays. My name is Abdallah Dariaan, I'm a professor of Middle East History at Georgetown University in Qatar, uh, where I study social movements and their history in the Arab region. Uh, More recently, I've just edited a book called Football in the Middle East, State Society and the Beautiful Game. The colonial uh, project in much of the Middle East came with certain cultural components. And so, for instance, when we think about the British occupation of many parts of the Arab region, we, we can identify the fact that colonial rulers wanted to bring in Uh, education and part of that kind of modernizing education included physical education which included introducing things like um, football as a sport that comes with a set of rules boundaries structures discipline the idea of introducing the game game was very much part of what they referred to as kind of producing these properly obedient individuals right that this was still very much part of a colonial project that um, relied heavily on the acquiescence of locals especially local elites Um, But one of the things, of course, that happens is the unintended consequence of introducing something um, that can take on a life of its own is that ultimately it gets internalized by the local population and then actually gets uh, deployed as part of um, the process of uh, achieving independence from colonial rule. And so we see it through things like the creation of various clubs, um, different competitions. Uh, the establishment of the various national leagues throughout uh, the Arab world. Um, And so the kind of politics, the intersection of politics, culture, uh, the economics of it as well, kind of all intersect in a way that tends to be seen as a way by which, um, you know, colonial subjects are able to then acquire their own independence and assert themselves in the sphere of international football. And so there's a very rich history here that we see, not just, um, you know, in places that we might expected given the fact that we hear a lot about you know the history of football in Egypt or Algeria or Sudan. Um, but even in a place like Qatar, where the National League of Qatar predates Qatar's own independence by nearly a decade, right? That it has its roots in the 1960s and Qatar doesn't even become an independent state until the early 70s. So there is something to be said, I think, about the fact that, that there is a football history um, that is very much interwoven with things like Um, you know, anti-colonial resistance as well as uh, national identity formation and the establishment of kind of modern nation states uh, in the period after independence.
1: The political significance of the game in the modern era. I've heard much said about football rivalries. Is there a certain intensity to the political rivalries in the region? Now we have countries like Qatar or the United Arab
2: Emirates and more recently Saudi Arabia, all of them kind of entering this very high stakes game of um, you know Premier League and and French League kind of football club ownership, right So they've invested heavily um, in owning major clubs in European football and and managed to even turn around their competitive fortunes, turning them from kind of you know laughing stocks of their leagues to becoming perennial champions and um, you know competing for for every single competition for every trophy. So, Um, You know, how does that actually play out in terms of the rivalries? I mean, we've seen it, I think, in the way that states have leveraged their footballing interests in order to pursue specific policy goals. And so we know, for instance, that the board members of Manchester City FC, which is owned by the UAE's Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, have lobbied heavily uh, on behalf of specific policy goals that the UAE would like to see the British government take on. Um, Or, of course, we're all probably familiar with the massive uh, transfer of Neymar from Barcelona to PSG in the summer of 2017 for this astronomical, you know, earth shattering record fee of 300 million euros. Um, well, that didn't happen in a vacuum. That was exactly at the same time that Fatah was being blockaded by four of its neighboring countries. And so, you know, people at the time were arguing that you could see this in a way as kind of an investment in um, ending that isolation, or at least confronting the blockade by ensuring that one of the biggest you know, sporting brands in the world, and Neymar um, becomes automatically associated with the Qatar brand by joining PSG and becoming kind of you know the the star player there at least for the next five years. And so there was something to the way that these rivalries have been playing out in a way that is also totally enmeshed with the kind of geopolitical um, jockeying for for influence and power that that we've seen in the Gulf as well.
1: After spending two 200- hundred billion if not more dollars on infrastructure uh, over the past 12 or so years. Qatar obviously has a lot on the line here in terms of its reputation and it's facing a lot of negative publicity. What does this tournament mean for it to be in the Middle East for the first time in terms of perceptions, for example?
2: this is historic for a number of reasons. Obviously, the fact that, that no country in this region has ever hosted a tournament that's been around since 1930. So we're talking about nearly a century, um, you know, without the Middle East ever playing host. Um, and I think, you know, that could probably be seen as understandable for much of that early history. We've talked about history of, you know, colonial rule in the region, followed by the um, You know, difficult post-colonial period and some of the, the sort of political upheaval, but that's never really prevented other countries, right? That we know that, for instance, Argentina hosted a World Cup while under a military dictatorship that was engaging in, in gross human rights uh, atrocities at the time. Um, you know, we've seen the kinds of discussions that have gone on around uh, both the South Africa and Brazil World Cups in terms of what it meant um, for the populations and some of the kind of the negative consequences there. Um, Russia of course entered to that conversation back in 2018, but I think there has been something a little bit more distinctive about the way that Qatar, maybe because it's had, uh, the bid going all the way back to 2010. And so we've had kind of a 12 year runway, so to speak, both with which the country had to, to prove to its critics that it would be able to kind of just logistically pull off the feet of building, you know, the massive requirements that were needed to be able to pull off the tournament the same time of course this also shines a light on many of the really crucial issues um, you know that are that are governing um you know how we look at things like migrant labor conditions so, i mean i think it's been um instrumental to have this be a situation in which people are beginning to ask those questions demand the kinds of reforms but there's been so little engagement i think with uh, local actors right so people who've been doing a lot of the advocacy work here long before qatar Got the bid and have been, you know, founding human rights organizations and doing the kind of monitoring and working with, um, you know, migrant workers on a number of kind of specific grievances and trying to seek relief. I mean, all of that has been kind of erased from the perspective of these sort of hegemonic narratives that we've seen coming out of um, largely European uh, media. But um, hopefully, in spite of the fact that we're seeing kind of this um, more hyperbolic. Um, you know, sensationalist sort of coverage, that there's still room to have actual change um, on the basis of much better informed uh, advocacy work that's being done. Um, and so this, I think, is, is kind of in a way bringing together a lot of the tensions that exist with these events, no matter where they're held as well. And I, and I do hope that the same kind of scrutiny that we've been seeing is something that carries over for all future mega events of this, of this caliber.
1: Before we go, it's time to talk about puppies. If you're traveling to Qatar, consider supporting one of the local animal rescue organizations that are finding homes for thousands of dogs, cats, and other animals each year. Like these beautiful salukis or Persian greyhounds. We brought two to Australia. Can't imagine life without Bo and Joey. Qatar Animal Welfare Society, COS, or PAWS Rescue Qatar, Second Chance Rescue, and plenty others, rescue strays from off the streets or find them wandering the desert. They feed them, they give them medical care, and support them until they find a forever home. They're always in need of financial support, so even if you're not going, consider sending them a donation. And if you have space in your home and heart to help relocate them to your country, get in touch. I've posted some links along with this episode. Next time on a controversial podcast.
3: One day, my friend got called by the Supreme Committee. He was afraid to speak up. I told him what concerns he should raise with the Supreme Committee. After he did that, the company cut his salary by 15 days because he spoke up. If you have so much privilege and power and social capital and you have a country you can go back to without really facing too much retribution, why would you then enable a exploitative system?